Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with President Biden signing into law today a sweeping $750 billion health care tax and climate bill at the White House in what is a much-needed victory for his administration and the Democratic Party ahead of the midterm elections. The Inflation Reduction Act will raise over $700 billion in government revenue over 10 years and spend over $430 billion to reduce carbon emissions while extending subsidies for health insurance under the Affordable Care Act with the rest of the new revenues going to reduce the deficit. Joining us is Jody Freeman, the Archibald Koch Professor at Harvard Law School and a founding director of the Law School's Environmental Law and Policy Program, the co-author with Michael Gerard of Global Climate Change and U.S. Law. She also serves as Counsel for Energy and Climate Change in the Obama White House and advised the Biden transition team. We will discuss her article at the New York Times, The Climate Bill Isn't Perfect, But It's Still a Major Victory. Then we'll look into the serious nature of what is in the affidavit that supported the FBI's search warrant of Mar-a-Lago, which Trump wants to unseal, but the Department of Justice in court filings made clear that such a move would devastate the DOJ and the FBI's case against the former president and endanger witnesses and our national security. Joining us is Michael Greenberger, the former Principal Deputy Associate Attorney General at the United States Department of Justice, where he supervised work on national security matters. He's the founder and director of the Center for Health and Homeland Security at the University of Maryland, where he also teaches constitutional law. Then finally, we'll assess the extent to which Trump's lawyers, like Sidney Powell, who went on a jihad against voting machines and were able to get access to their software, were using claims of vote rigging to undermine election security in the name of protecting it. Joining us is Susan Greenhall, who is the Senior Advisor on Election Security for Free Speech for People. She has previously served as Vice President of Programs at Verified Voting and at the National Election Defense Coalition, advocating for secure election protocols, paper ballot voting, and post-election audits. Recognized as an expert on election security, she joins us to discuss how Powell's team got hold of sensitive software that could be altered to rig elections in three key swing states. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now, Jody Freeman, the Archibald Cox Professor at Harvard Law School and the founding director of the Law School's Environmental Law and Policy Program, the co-author with Michael Gerard of Global Climate Change and U.S. Law. She also served as Counsel for Energy and Climate Change in the Obama White House and advised the Biden transition team. And she has an article at the New York Times, The Climate Bill Isn't Perfect, But It's Still a Major Victory. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jody Freeman. Great to be with you. 
Well, thanks for joining us. And today, President Biden signed into law this sweeping $750 billion health care tax and climate bill at the White House. And it's called the Inflation Reduction Act. And it will raise over $700 billion in government revenues over 10 years and spend over $430 billion to reduce carbon emissions and extend subsidies for health insurance under the Affordable Care Act and use the rest of the new revenues to reduce the deficit. So not build back better, but build back smaller. And I take it you feel it's a big step forward. I do. I mean, I think this is a major accomplishment for a few reasons, but I also think we should step back and put it together with the other legislation Congress has passed that will incentivize clean energy. So this bill, the the number I heard most recently is that it spends about $369 billion on a combination of clean energy tax credits for things like buying, you know, electric vehicles to help consumers buy things that will upgrade their home efficiency, like heat pumps, and a variety of incentives and subsidies that will help create more clean energy manufacturing and drive consumer uptake. So that's a lot of spending um, and subsidy and investment tax credits to sort of drive a clean energy transition. But if you pair it with the other legislation Congress passed, you get even a bigger impact. So recently, a little bit under the radar, Congress passed another bill called the CHIPS Act. It's actually called Creating Helpful Incentives to Produce Semiconductors for America Act. So it's really focused on reviving the U.S. semiconductor industry, but embedded in it are a variety of investments in research and development that will also spur clean energy research and development. So that bill has a real benefit for the climate, too. And then there's a third thing that many people may have forgotten by now. But in 2021, of course, Congress passed the Bipartisan Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. And that bill, the infrastructure bill, had a very significant amount of funding for EV charging infrastructure and also for grid modernization. So if you really look at what the Congress has done in the first two years of the Biden administration, it is a historic level of investment in climate and clean energy. And how much is this bill in sort of going to guide us or stimulate us or incentivize us, incentivize is the best word, to make this change? The change is underway. So how do you see this? This is a huge spur, I take it. Yeah, I mean, I, I see it as sort of the biggest investment the U.S. Congress has ever made in, in really industrial policy to try to drive clean energy technology into the marketplace and then create consumer demand for it. So I'll give you just one example of how that could work. So Congress here is spending billions of dollars to try to reward decarbonizing industrial materials like steel and concrete. Um, And they do it by creating a certification system so that the consumers, the public will be able to tell what steel is lower carbon steel, right? So buyers will know through a certification system what the carbon content is of steel and cement. And that then helps create a kind of awareness around what the carbon content is. And then there's funding to help incentivize demand for that, purchasing of that, so that states and companies and jurisdictions that are going to use it for roads and for building will be able to use it in an affordable way. So the the bill has a collection of incentives that both create markets 
for lower carbon products and then help consumers buy those products. So you argue, of course, and I take it it's because these better options weren't on the table, that a more direct approach would have placed caps on the amount of greenhouse gases industries can emit or tax carbon dioxide emissions by the ton in addition to funding clean energy. Those policies would make it more costly to pollute and push energy producers and consumers to shift to cleaner fuels instead. These measures only reduce emissions indirectly. So that's... Maybe that's the place to start is really, let's put this bill in perspective by saying what it does and doesn't do. The, the bill really spends on incentives, tax credits to drive uptake of clean energy technology, to drive manufacturing of batteries, for example, uh, and other low carbon technologies, and to incentivize consumers to buy them. So that's all good. That creates markets for these products and demand for these products. It will help the auto industry sell uh, low-carbon vehicles, electric vehicles. That's all for the good. But what it doesn't do, what this bill does not do, is actually put a limit on greenhouse gas emissions across the U.S. economy. You know, if the problem is greenhouse gas emissions, and that is the problem with climate change, the most direct thing you could do is cap those emissions, um, or another alternative will be to tax them, but you have to make polluting costly. So this bill doesn't actually attack the problem that way, and that's why, you know, in my New York Times piece, I said, look, it's not perfect. It's not the perhaps ideal solution. But what it does is it makes significant investments in the alternatives to help make the low-carbon, ener- low clean energy alternatives more attractive to consumers and to help create more research and development for the clean energy transition. So it may not be the ideal solution, but it's certainly a major step forward. And again, I'm speaking with Jody Freeman, who's the Archibald Cox Professor at Harvard Law School and the founding director of the Law School's Environmental Law and Policy Program, the co-author with Michael Gerard of Global Climate Change and U.S. Law. She also served as counselor for energy and climate change in the Obama White House and advised the Biden transition team. And she has an article in the New York Times, The Climate Bill Isn't Perfect, But It's Still a Major Victory. So... Looking into some of the benefits in this bill, particularly getting a $7,500 tax credit to purchase a new electric car or about 4000 for a used one, there is a sort of caveat, is there not, Jody, about where the batteries come from and where the components in the battery are sourced? Yeah. So there are actually... Um incentives here that will require the auto companies over time to get the minerals that are in the batteries like lithium and cobalt from countries that have free trade agreements with the United States. So that is phased in over time in order for the car companies to take advantage of the credits that will be offered that you just mentioned. They have to phase out uh, minerals from non-free trade countries like China. And there are also incentives that phase in a requirement for the batteries to be made um, in the United States or in North America so that over time the battery components need to be North American made. And all of that is, you know, kind of phased in so that there's a little bit of time for the auto industry uh, to get up to speed because they don't immediately have all the sources for those minerals, for example, and we don't immediately have all of the capacity in the U.S. to manufacture all of the battery components. But it will 
lower the cost of cars, right? That's the problem with electric yeah. cars. Uh, yeah. Uh, the the, the Teslas are way beyond the, the average middle-class family's uh, pocketbook. Yeah. Set, aside Teslas, set aside Teslas for the moment, which are kind of the most expensive version of these vehicles. There are a lot of electric vehicle models that are now being funded by the auto industry. They're coming rolling off the um, production line. And these credits will help to close the gap and create parity between those electric vehicles, which may be more expensive because the batteries are more expensive than traditional internal combustion engines. So by giving consumers who make below a certain income threshold some help, you help make them more affordable. And I think this credit also for used EVs is really smart because a lot of people are in the market for a used car and can't afford a new car. And so I think these credits will be very helpful, not just for consumers, but I think they'll be helpful for the auto industry, which is pouring billions of dollars into making electric vehicles. And they're going to need some help from consumers um, that, you know, are going to buy those vehicles to make the production more affordable for the auto industry. And your piece in the New York Times, uh, Jody Freeman, the climate bill isn't perfect, but it's still a major victory says that the legislation will also strengthen the legal basis for regulating greenhouse gases under the Clean Air Act, which will lead to additional reductions. Now, recently the Supreme Court appeared to gut the uh, EPA's ability to regulate greenhouse gases. So explain further, if you will. So there's a fringe benefit to this legislation, which is that by driving the cost of cleaner technology down, by making it more affordable they actually make it more likely that regulators like the Environmental Protection Agency can raise standards. And that's because you can ask the auto industry and you can ask the power sector, power plants, and you can ask the oil and gas industry to meet higher standards for controlling their greenhouse gases if the technology to do so is more available and less expensive. So making technology more widely available and cheaper actually helps drive standards up. So there's a relationship there that's really helpful. And I should just say, there were a lot of media reports that suggested that the Supreme Court, um, you know, really, as you said, gutted or um, stripped EPA of its power to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. And it's not true. All the Supreme Court did, it is a setback, but all they did in the end was take one pathway away from the Environmental Protection Agency when it set standards for power plants. It took away the best pathway which is to set grid-wide standards based on substituting renewable energy in for coal and natural gas. But even though the Supreme Court took that uh, weapon or that strategy away from EPA, the agency can still regulate greenhouse gases. And it can still regulate them from power plants and from the auto sector and from the oil and gas sector. So the EPA is still a powerful agency. It's still a greenhouse gas regulator. And this bill is going to help it out because this bill is going to make carbon capture and sequestration more affordable, which might mean down the road more utilities are going to be using it to control their power plant emissions, and that means it's more likely EPA can actually require it. So I think there are two great things about this bill, the climate provisions and the Inflation Reduction Act. One is that it subsidizes and incentivizes and invests in clean energy technology, and the other is it's going to help the regulators like EPA drive greenhouse gas emissions down. The, the upshot, Ian, that everybody is citing is the projection of achieving 10% more reductions uh, by 2050 toward the U.S. goal 
to meet the Paris Agreement, that, that goal is 50 to 52 percent below 2005 levels by 2030. So the bottom line is we get to 40 percent instead of just reaching 30 percent below 2005 levels. That's the incremental 10 percent improvement I talk about. You could say, well, that seems pretty small, but actually it's only seven years or so uh, to 2030, and another 10% reduction by then is pretty good, and it gets us closer to our commitment to Paris. So I think there's a lot of upside to this bill. So what do you think of environmentalists like Bill McGibbon? Uh, apparently his new book is pretty apocalyptic and almost suggests, you know, we always talked about how we're running out of time and how global warming has these detrimental multiplying effects as you lose more of the ice cap, uh, therefore less light gets reflected back into outer space and more is absorbed in the oceans, etc. And uh, that, you know, obviously under Donald Trump, we lost four years altogether. And for reasons which mystify me, uh, given that it was, after all, the Republican president, Richard Nixon, that started the EPA, that the Republicans all are in lockstep against any measures to deal with global warming. So what's your sense then of whether or not Bill McGibbon and others are excessively pessimistic? Well, let me just say, obviously, this legislation, these investments, and even all of the bills I cited to you that Congress has passed, all of it's not enough. I mean, there's no question that we have a major challenge here uh, with warming that is happening faster and with more negative consequences than we predicted. I I think we're seeing that all around us, heat waves, intense storms. Um, We're watching the Arctic melt faster than scientists projected. So uh, that's all undeniably happening. But I, I do think it is a good moment. I do think it's worth pausing and saying that after all these years of doing very little Uh, making occasional investments in tax credits for solar and wind energy or occasionally uh, investing in energy efficiency. After all these years of rather incremental steps, the U.S. Congress has done something quite significant. And I think we ought to applaud that and build on it going forward. And the trade-offs to get uh, Senator Manchin aboard, are they fairly negligible? Um, I mean, the the trade-offs people mostly cite are that certain oil and gas leases on public lands have to be offered, have to be offered for sale. It doesn't mean they will be sold, but they have to be auctioned off if there are bidders. And then some of the leases for offshore wind uh, are tied to offering leases for oil and gas. Uh, The calculations I've seen for additional emissions that could be tied to those leases are not very significant. Um, so most people are assessing this as not a major concession, but certainly there were concessions in the bill. Um, I should say I'm an independent director on the board of an oil and gas company, ConocoPhillips, where I, on the board, you know, present these kind of views about climate change and offer insight into the energy transition. And so I can tell you that the oil and gas industry is very much thinking about the energy transition looking at these trends, going to have to adapt to these trends. And, you know, in this bill, um, there is for the first time a fee for methane emissions, uh, for, for emissions that come from oil and gas facilities, from venting and flaring methane. So um, there are some provisions here that will help drive things forward. Um, that methane fee is the first tax of its kind, the first fee of its kind to come from the U.S. Congress. It's really a backstop provision in case 
um, you know, to make sure that the EPA finishes its rulemaking. It's now doing a rulemaking on methane control, and that fee will only have to be paid if companies don't comply with the EPA rule for methane. So now we have a kind of insurance program uh, to make sure that methane does get um, does get reduced across the U.S. economy. So I think there's just a set of things. If you comb through this bill and you comb through the provisions, you see one thing after another uh, that is going to help drive emissions down, although not directly, uh, for the most part, indirectly over time, which may not be perfect, as I say, but is certainly a step in the right direction. And just in closing, in terms of methane, I know that in some cities like New York, there new buildings have to be hooked up for electricity in terms of water heaters and stoves, no more stovetops with gas and, and water heaters with gas. That's an important part of getting rid of methane is the entire network of uh, gas from wells through storage, through pipelines into the house. Uh, there's no real inventory. They leak all over the place. So methane is a huge problem. And the Permian Basin, of course, in Texas is a, is a huge problem. And as you point out, this new bill signed today by President Biden taxes some of the seepage. So how comprehensive is it in the long run here in the context of what I just laid out? Well, well, first, I think that the main driver of methane reduction is going to be the Environmental Protection Agency setting a standard for it for the oil and gas industry. And they've already proposed it. Uh, and it's going to be finalized, I would expect, within the calendar year. And that really requires companies to um, monitor their uh, emissions of methane and take steps to reduce it once they, uh, once they evaluate whether it's leaking. So I think that's a very significant program. Uh, it's going to be a historic program from the Environmental Protection Agency. And um, uh, I think that will be the main driver. The requirements you're talking about at the state level, they're important, too, in the sense that we see more and more requirements for new buildings to um, be electrified. And we're seeing a trend toward electrification of the new building stock, just like we're seeing a trend toward electrifying vehicles. That's going to take some time. Both of those things will take some time. Uh, the fact that Congress is now infusing money into that transition is very helpful. Um, so I think we're sort of rowing in the right direction. The problem is things don't happen as urgently as they need to. And so there's still some frustration, and I really understand that. But after some years of, you know, pretty bad news and a lot of setbacks and moments where, you know, the negotiations over the, um, the Build Back Better bill were verging on collapse multiple times, the fact that you get a package over the finish line here um, with a lot of credit to um, uh, Leader Schumer and a lot of credit to the staffers in Congress and to Senator Carper, who headed the Environmental and Public Works, Environment and Public Works Committee in the Senate. And in the end, whether you think he's a hero or a villain, Joe Manchin was necessary to get this over the finish line. Once you see that this bill gets over the finish line with so much uh, investment in it for climate change, I think you've just got to acknowledge that it's a step in the right direction. Well, I thank you very much for joining us here today, Jody Freeman. Great. Great to be with you. 
And again, I've been speaking with Jody Freeman, who's the Archibald Cox Professor at Harvard Law School and the founding director of the Law School's Environmental Law and Policy Program. She's the co-author with Michael Gerard of Global Climate Change and U.S. Law and also served as Counselor for Energy and Climate Change in the Obama White House and advised the Biden transition team. And she has an article in the New York Times, The Climate Bill Isn't Perfect, But It's Still a Major Victory. We're going to take a brief station break and back look into the serious nature of the affidavit that supported the FBI search warrant at Mar-a-Lago, which Trump once unsealed. But the DOJ warns that such a move could devastate their case against the former president and endanger witnesses and our national security. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Michael Greenberger, the former Principal Deputy Associate Attorney General at the United States Department of Justice, where he supervised work on national security matters. He's the founder and director of the Center for Health and Homeland Security at the University of Maryland, where he also teaches constitutional law. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Greenberger. Thank you, Ian. Well, thanks Very for joining happy us. To be here. Thanks for joining us. And obviously, the affidavit that was prepared by the Department of Justice uh, for the FBI to justify the search warrant that was used by the FBI a week ago Monday at Mar-a-Lago is now become an issue, a contentious issue, because Trump obviously wants it revealed, because it reveals all kinds of important uh, details about the case that the FBI and the DOJ has against him, and the unsealing uh, has been blocked, at least temporarily, by the Department of Justice, which argued in a filing signed by Jay Pratt, the head of the Counterintelligence and Export Control Section of the Department of Justice and National Security Division. That in itself is a signal to me, Michael, that uh, there may be some serious national security implications to this, the contents in these boxes that were seized by the FBI? Well, there's no doubt that there's serious national security implications from the documents at issue. But the bigger issue about this unsealing of the affidavit has a more dangerous, and I would say from the perspective of the public sinister, motivation. Uh, The affidavit which supports the search warrant and shows the magistrate who issued the search warrant that there's probable cause that a crime has been committed and there's probable cause that the documents are in the location sought to be searched. But the, uh, and and as you know, historically, Friday, we went through the, the question of whether or not the search warrant itself and the property list of that seized, whether that would be made public. And the department initiated that in front of the magistrate uh, to sort of tamp down the uh, uh, public uh, 
concern, especially from the Republicans and Trump's supporters, about the legitimacy of the search warrant. And this showed that nuclear documents, among other things, were at issue. But now Trump has come back and he wants the underlying affidavit that uh, was presented to the magistrate to support uh, uh, the evidentiary finding that there was probable cause of a crime and probable cause that the documents were there. And the Justice Department is opposing that. And it's not because they want to fight transparency, but the affidavit is going to list the people that they're relying on to understand what the facts are. And the papers and the media are filled with it, with uh, queries about so-called informants, uh, possibly even within Trump's inner circle, who provided the information. And what Trump uh, and his people now want, they want the names of those informants. Uh, Probably, if it's somebody close to Trump and their speculation, and I want to underline speculation, that it may even be one of his children, uh, uh, for obvious reasons, the department doesn't want to expose, if it's somebody that close to Trump, to the pressure from Trump. Uh, I think Trump wants the affidavit. He wants to know who is telling the Justice Department where his documents are, where they're stored, what the security is, and Lord knows what else. And now it's become of interest to Trump because he wants to draw a ring around whoever it is within his circle who seems to be, uh, I don't want to use the word leaking, I'd like to find another word, uh, but is giving the information to the Justice Department that forms the basis, A, for the search warrant, and B, for the probable cause that a crime has been committed. And by the way, once the department feels comfortable with a finding that there's probable cause, that is going to mean an indictment is going to issue. Now, I will say this. I think Merrick Garland, who is someone I know and I have a great deal of respect for, uh, he's very thorough, very appropriately cautious about this. I suspect even when they decide there's probable cause that a crime has been committed, there'll be serious consideration given to whether you indict a former president. Uh, My guess would be that the evidence is clear enough and Merrick Garland is courageous enough that an indictment will issue. But the real issue at stake for getting a hold of that affidavit is to give Trump the opportunity uh, to control those who seem to be within his inner circle and are feeding information to the Justice Department and forming the basis of the search warrant, and probably, if Trump is indicted, are forming the basis of the indictment. Now, some of those people, obviously, once the indictment is issued, will be revealed, uh, and some may not. They may be giving the Justice Department leads for other information, but they won't be brought forth as principal witnesses. But even if those who are brought forth as principal witnesses It's one thing to tell the Trump inner circle and the Trump organization who those people are pre-indictment. But once the indictment is issued, the ability of Trump to sort of fight off anyone in his inner circle from cooperating will be a mood issue. And uh, so what's at stake now clearly 
is the Trump inner want to find out who's informing and see if they can head it off. And again, I'm speaking with Michael Greenberger, who was the former Principal Deputy Associate Attorney General at the United States Department of Justice, where he supervised work on national security matters. He's the founder and director of the Center for Health and Homeland Security at the University of Maryland, where he also teaches constitutional law. So in in their filing to stop the unsealing of the affidavit, the Justice Department said there remain compelling reasons, including to protect the integrity of an ongoing law enforcement investigation that implicates national security, that support keeping the affidavit sealed. So I've often asked from day one here, Michael, the question is, what did Trump want with those documents? Why did he take them with him? And he already gave some up, but he kept more, and they even signed off the last time in June that they'd given the National Archives everything they had, which was a lie. So he's really holding on to stuff that's really important. Now, there's some speculation that it's nuclear secrets, so then you have to scratch your head and say, why would he want that? Why would he want a dossier on Macron, the the French president? I mean, inquiring minds want to know, and the assumptions suddenly become, given Trump's sort of criminal instincts and a wannabe mob boss kind of attitude and a scoff law and everything you're describing about him wanting to get the affidavit is straight out of Roy Cohn. So was he about to sell nuclear secrets or give them to his pal Putin or what's going on here? Well, of course, I don't know and I can't tell you with any degree of certainty what is going on. But I can tell you what people are speculating about, and that is uh, if he holds documents that are critical to uh, the United States national security, and by that I mean if they are leaked, it puts the United States in a very bad position in terms of its relationship both with its enemies and with its allies, who it's trying to support in various ways, you could well imagine that that would be a bargaining chip. Now, again, I don't know this, but people are speculating, and I think that speculation uh, has some degree of legitimacy that if uh, Garland decides he wants to indict, uh, either before or after he indicts, let's say before Garland goes to Trump's attorneys to talk about what's going to happen, But even after an indictment, uh, Trump could easily say, look, call this indictment back or I am going to release these critical documents that are important to the national security of the country. Again, I want to emphasize I don't know that, but if you read the media carefully, that's been raised as a likely uh, reason for it. And uh, based on my best guessing, without hard facts, but if I had to speculate, I would be very worried. That's why he wants to hold on to these documents as a bargaining chip to push back against any indictment uh, or what have you, uh, and to, in effect, say to the Biden administration and Merrick Garland's Justice Department, if you do this, I'm going to do that, and the country will be very badly harmed. Now. You know, the fact that we say that or think about it is not a very pleasant way to be thinking, 
But if you look at the history of this guy, Trump, uh, he is uh, his loyalties, I think, are speculative to the principal worry of the safety and well-being of the United States. But Michael Greenberger, does that mean that since the FBI seized these documents and they're now in the custody of the Department of Justice, does that mean that Trump has lost his leverage? I I think that's exactly what it means. And I think, again, speculating on my experience in the Justice Department, my experience as a practicing lawyer and my experience in the academia, uh, I would suspect that that was the principal reason the department wanted those documents back. Now, of course, let me say this. There are so many different laws, laws that affect the president, laws that affect every government employee, federal government employee, including the president, that require the most careful handling of all federal documents. And by the way, uh, Trump is saying these aren't the Justice Department's documents. These are, quote, my close quote documents. That is completely and totally wrong. This is the public's document. These are the United States and United States citizens' documents. They are the ones who own ownership uh, of these documents. And Trump's belief that is so misguided, it's not funny, and it's not only misguided, but he's been told that that's not the case. He was told that when he started his presidency by the archives and uh, his White House counsel and even his chief of staff, be very careful with these documents. These are the public's documents. And they, especially the ones that have to be securely held, have a very vital uh, importance to the American public as a whole. He was told that at the beginning of his presidency. He certainly has been told that when there's now stories about when he left the White House and how these documents got from the White House to Mar-a-Lago. He was told that. uh, But I think we are free to speculate based on what we have seen of the way Trump operates that you could well imagine that his understanding of documents that he had in his possession in the White House would be given his selfishness uh, be foremost in his mind as his documents. But as a matter of law, they're the public's documents. And the other thing I would say, this has never been an issue before. And why has it never been an issue before? Because Republican presidents and Democratic presidents have always considered these disclosure statutes and the need to protect secure documents they never question it. That is uh, the mantra, whether we're talking about uh, George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush, Clinton, uh, Obama. Uh, and I can tell you in my service in the federal government, uh, you know, I have to go through before I leave the most careful briefing by the archives and by those lawyers within in my case, the Justice Department, who are responsible for this, and you are given chapter and verse about who owns what. Uh, And it's been said uh, uh, in much of the media that even if you've got doodles from sitting in meetings, uh, those documents have to be turned over. 
documents that you created, that you researched, that you developed, they are the public's documents, not your documents. Uh, that comes as a shock to a lot of people. But, uh, and so it's self-enforced. And up until this situation, you go through all these administrations and you never hear that somebody has walked that off with, for example, nuclear secrets. And the reason is, as I said, Republican or Democratic administrations, there has been an adherence to the obligation that these documents have to be carefully preserved and they are not the property of the federal employee or the president. They're the property of the United States citizens. Well, Michael Greenberger, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Of course, Ian. I enjoyed it. And again, I've been speaking with Michael Greenberger, who is the former Principal Deputy Associate Attorney General at the United States Department of Justice, where he supervised work on national security matters. He's the founder and director of the Center for Health and Homeland Security at the University of Maryland, where he also teaches constitutional law. We're going to get a restation break. We're back looking into how Trump's lawyers like Sidney Powell, who went on a jihad against voting machines, were able to get access to their software in order to use these claims of vote rigging to undermine election security in the name of protecting it. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Susan Greenhall, who is the Senior Advisor on Election Security for Free Speech for People. She has previously served as a Vice President for Programs at Verified Voting and at the National Election Defense Coalition, advocating for secure election protocols, paper ballot voting systems, and post-election audits. Recognized as an expert on election security, she has been invited to testify before the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights and has been invited speaker at meetings of the MITRE Corporation, the National Conference of State Legislatures, the Midwest Election Officials Conference, the International Association of Government Officials, and the Election Verification Network and the E-Vote ID Conference in Austria. Welcome to Background Briefing, Susan Greenhall. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Susan. And there are elections today, of course, in in Wyoming, where Congresswoman Liz Cheney is expected to lose. Her opponent is pushing the stop the steal lie, even though she had previously condemned Trump in a harsh way, just as J.D. Vance in Ohio had done. But that hasn't stopped them from now being complete sycophants. So you have the big lie at work. 70% of the Republicans apparently believe that the last election was stolen and that Trump was the rightful winner. And the same is happening, of course, in Alaska today with Sarah Palin running on the big lie as well. But what the Washington Post revealed recently is that while the Republicans and their candidates running are saying that the last election was rigged and stolen, it turns out that there was a real attempt by Sidney Powell and other Trump-allied lawyers 
to get into the software in, in voting machines in key swing states. And what would the purpose of being to get hold of software but other than to uh, alter it? Well, we, d- we don't know exactly what they were trying to do with the software, but we do know that the Trump attorneys, Sidney Powell and some other attorneys associated with the Trump campaign and people associated with the Trump campaign were involved in hiring and arranging the access of voting systems, in, providing insider access in several states. In some states, that access was authorized, and in a couple of other states, it was not authorized and could potentially be illegal or violative of, of state law. So what we do know is that they were trying to get a hold of the data of the votes, were they trying to find what they thought was vote fraud or or was there a more nefarious purposes? It's unclear at this stage, but the bottom line problem is that these different incidents to access the software has resulted in people who have, in cases, accessed the, the equipment without authorization, have publicized the voting system software put it on the internet and basically allowed any any Tom, Dick, and Harry criminal to know what the software looks like, which makes it more vulnerable to potential attacks because it makes it easier for uh, uh, somebody with bad intent to game out ways to um, attack the system. Well, the concern surely is that these officials, if you could call them that, or lawyers, if you could call them, Cindy Powell a lawyer, and others, are obviously sympathetic to Trump's claim of vote rigging, and they could undermine election security in the name of protecting it, which just seems to be what, what's going on here. Absolutely. By, by accessing these systems, they've exposed how vulnerable our systems are to insider threat, especially if you have election officials or administrators who are sympathetic or or have been brainwashed to believe the big lie and are willing to compromise um, their um, responsibility as a public servant to allow people to have unauthorized access to voting equipment, which is what we saw in Georgia and and in other places as well, and in you know in Colorado, where Tina Peters was willing to break the law to access the voting systems, or allegedly break the law, I should say, because she's she's been charged with taking certain steps, which uh, like identity theft, etc., to um, to be able to give these outside actors access to the voting systems. So. If you have people that are willing to bend rules, break rules, or potentially break the law to access the system in the name of their belief of a lie, it um, becomes really worrisome when you think what else um, that could lead to. Well, there have been 10 of these election deniers elected to run as Republicans in several of the, of the key swing states, among them Michigan where already uh, this Matthew DiPerno, who's a lawyer in league with uh, Sidney Powell, he's now the Republican nominee for Michigan's Attorney General, and he's named in this, the suit against those people that tried to come up with the false slate of electors. So 
they're already putting in place people in charge of counting elections that are election deniers. So if you combine that with the ability to get hold of the software in the electronic voting machines uh, and alter it, it's game over, is it not? Uh, it, it's very, it's a very scary prospect. Having people who are willing to break rules and, and, and lie in charge of our elections, which is something that we want to have people that are going to honor their, their responsibility to their office, honor their oaths, honor um, their, their commitment to our democracy, rather than people that are trying to tear it down. And um, I'm afraid I don't, we don't want to scare people, but it's a not a positive prospect to have people in the potentially in these positions. But the elections haven't happened yet, so hopefully we'll see where these election deniers go, and hopefully we won't see a lot of them winning elections to into office this November. But I agree with you; it's it's not a comforting prospect to see these people on the ballot. But in terms of the Sydney Powell and the cohorts among them, of course, the head of the the Cyber Ninjas, this character Logan, and like I mentioned DePerno, the lawyer, uh, who's now the Republican nominee for Attorney General in Michigan, they were able, though, in Coffee County, in the key swing state of Georgia, to get hold of the uh, software in the voting machines and their access went undetected for more than a year after the election. So that's extraordinary, is it not? I mean, we're we're just finding out this stuff. So if they did all this after the 2020 elections, presumably they're going to try and do more in the November elections, unless they're stopped. I'm I'm so glad you brought that point up, because it's something that kind of got lost in the Washington Post story, and that is that this breach happened in Coffee County, Georgia, a year and a half ago, more than a year and a half ago. And there has not been any meaningful investigation by the Georgia Secretary of State into that, um, into that breach until there was evidence of the, the breach raised because of the private citizen lawsuit that's been brought by the Coalition for Good Governance and other plaintiffs in Georgia known as Curling v. Raffensperger. And through their um, efforts to uncover um, emails and documents and other evidence, they were the ones that found confirmation that this breach had happened um, while they had been begging and screaming for the Secretary of State's office to do something about it and investigate, and they hadn't. The Secretary of State's office knew in December of 2020 that this election official in Coffee County, who is a Trump sympathizer supporter, had made a video disparaging the Dominion equipment, which included a post-it note with the password to her system on it and put it up on YouTube. So the password to the system was visible to the world for anyone that wanted to see it. And the Secretary of State's office knew that and then did not come into Coffee County and change the password 
uh, or or to take any action to secure the system. And the Secretary of State's office is responsible for setting the passwords and changing them. So it's not as if the, they could have asked the, the person in Coffee County to do it. They knew that the password was out to the world, and then they didn't bother to go in and change it. They didn't do a meaningful investigation. And as recently as April, Gabriel Sterling of the Secretary of State's office spoke at a conference at the Carter Center and told people that there was no breach in Coffee County. So what we're seeing, what we've seen actually from the Secretary of State's office is rather a robust, um, rather than a robust investigation, um, what appears to have been some sort of uh, either a lack of a, a, um, investigation or potentially even a cover-up. And um, I, I think people should watch that space to see what more is going on there, because um, you're right to raise the fact that this happened 18, you know, more than a year and a half ago, and we're just learning about the details now. Um, that's unacceptable. And so we need people in offices who are going to honor their oath and honor our democracy, but are also going to vigorously try and root out these types of activities from underneath them. And and, and we did see that in Michigan and, and in other states where, in Colorado, where the Secretary of State worked very hard to investigate and make sure that these types of activities aren't going on. And, um, and But in Georgia, it's a different story, clearly. Well, Susan Greenhall, it's extraordinary, though, that this was so public, as you say on YouTube, that the software inside the Dominion voting systems in rural Coffee County were made accessible to the world. Uh, little wonder... Dominion is suing Sidney Powell. They're suing Fox News and a lot of the Fox News commentators as well, as I think the Murdochs. So um, they've clearly been badly hurt, but they're asking for billions in compensation. It sounds like they <laughs> they got a good case. Yeah, I think there's um, you know there's a difference between certain vulnerabilities in software and exploitations, and that's that's what we. You know, they're, they're, the MAGA people are trying to conflate the two, and there are, you know, there are issues with our voting systems that need to be rectified, but um, and can be improved and are being improved in many cases. But that's it, that's a big difference from actually exploiting voting systems and the some of the things that were said on Fox News and and some of these other uh, outlets were just so fantastic and outrageous that there's no basis, in fact, in there. And it'll be interesting to see how those, those cases progress. But election voting systems are classified by the federal government as critical infrastructure, mm -hmm. according to the Department of Homeland Security. So how was it that Sidney Powell and these other Trump lawyers were able to get this company called Sullivan Strickler to get to these voting machines in various key swing states and get them to open up the software. So in in um, two of the cases, they actually did have authorization through court order, which put certain restrictions and limitations on it. But it wasn't in that in those instances, it wasn't unauthorized. In in the case of Coffee County and some of the other jurisdictions, the election administrator or the board county uh, the in Coffee County. It's alleged that some of the board members um, 
were basically in on the the heist, if you will, or in, in on in on the plan, in on the scheme, and were um, part of it. So if you have administrators in the jurisdiction that are willing, again, as I said, to to bend rules, break rules, potentially break the law, that gives these bad actors, you know, they're, then those officials are, you know, not acting honorably or in accordance with their their responsibilities. Um, you can see these these types of access, uh, this type of access can happen. And, um, you know, let's hope that, th- that it's contained to the ones that we know about, but we don't know that for sure. It's, it's possible that it could have occurred other places. There are allegations of some access in Fulton County, some other areas as well. Well, but the MO of Trump and his lawyers appears to be that they, you know, are using claims of vote rigging to, uh, you know, undermine election security in the name of protecting it. I mean, that's what yeah. that's what the Washington Post article quotes one of the officials investigating it. So, as I say, my, my concern is that, you know, Sidney Powell's obviously off the wall, and so is Rudy Giuliani, and now, of course, he's now a target of investigation in, in uh, Georgia, and, you know, he may well be sacrificed by Trump. He may, <laughs> he may well be the fall guy. But it does seem like they got a lot further than we thought they did in terms of surveillance, if that's the way to put it. But with the ability to, once you've got hold of the software, you can certainly manipulate it. So how secure are we coming up? Because doesn't a lot of this depend upon whether these election deniers get elected to these key posts as uh, secretaries of state and heads of canvassing boards, etc.? Well, yeah, that's that's why people should definitely get out to vote and make sure that the people that they're voting for are protecting democracy, protecting their vote, protecting elections with truth. So that's definitely a, a, a concern if these people do ascend to these higher offices. But I, I think there's one other aspect of this that I think I'll, I'll just kind of touch on to to remind everybody that in that executive order that that was drafted purportedly by Sidney Powell to seize voting equipment, they mentioned Coffee County, Georgia. So there was some expectation that they were going to be able to prove something coming out of Coffee County. It appears in that the fact that uh, it was mentioned in the executive order. I'm not aware of anybody having proved anything that's come out of Coffee County, but it was it was mentioned in that um, executive order. And then the Powell-backed contingent went in and, and accessed the equipment and software. Um, so this could have some other ramifications for the larger um, concerns of the bigger effort to overturn the election by the Trump campaign and its allies. Well, Susan Greenhall, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Well, thank you so much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Susan Greenhall, who is a senior advisor on election security for Free Speech for People. She has previously served as vice president of programs at Verified Voting and at the National Election Defense Coalition, advocating for secure election protocols, paper ballot voting systems, and post-election audits. And she's recognized as an expert on election security 
and has been invited to testify before the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights and has been an invited speaker at meetings of the MITRE Corporation, the National Conference on State Legislatures, the Midwest Election Officials Conference, the International Association of Government Officials, the Election Verification Network, and the eVote ID Conference in Austria. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America My quiet voice was singing something to me I'm